0: Well, to all my audience out there, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth again. And thank you. We are closing in on 1,000 podcasts, which is a big milestone for me, Todd. And joining me from Connecticut is Todd Churches. Good day to you, Todd. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Greg. I was just saying, I have to head into New York shortly to teach my NYU class, but uh, I'm doing good today. I'm all psyched for our conversation, looking forward to it. (laughs)
0: Well, I am as well, and for all of you who haven't seen the book we're going to talk about, if you're on video, you can see right behind Todd, there's a whole shelf of them and a big one right in the corner there, and I'm going to hold the book up, Visual Leadership, uh, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. Um, Todd Churches. And and if you want to, there's two places you can go to dot toddchurches.com. That's t-o-d-d-c-h-e-r-c-h e-s dot com. And the other one is www.bigbluegumball.com. We'll put links to both of those in um our blog and in the podcast. And Todd, I just want to make a big yell out to you that anybody who buys this book off amazon which we'll have a link to it is a super high quality book it's very well done um, visually and the way that the text is written and the learning experiences that you'll get out of it based on the questions that are outlined at the end of each of the chapters and visual leadership um You know, David Winkleman was the one that introduced me to Todd, and I want to make a shout out about that because I always appreciate the people that make all these connections for me to get all these interviews done. And this is a very interesting topic. You know, I've done all things on uh, uh, podcasts about graphic facilitation and creating visual elements associated with either creating new ideas and businesses. And Todd's book has a degree of that, but it goes one step further. Um, And I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. He's the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, an innovative New York City-based management and leadership consulting training and executive coaching firm. He's also a TEDx speaker, and we'll put a link in our blog to the TEDx talk called The Power of Visual Thinking, and a two-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU School of Professional Studies, Division of Programs in Business, as well as lecture on leadership at Columbia University. So Todd has the credibility. He's done this. Again, I'll put a shout out, a wonderful book. So Todd, let's kind of just kick this off because I know this book has so much in it. I mean, th- the chapters, some of them are short, some of them are a little longer, um, but the reality is there is so much in this book for somebody to kind of take in. And you tell an interesting story about growing up and wanting to be Batman or Superman, you say, or working in television. Um, and, you know, it was like, well, I'm going to be Batman or I'm going to be Superman. I can't be either, but I could work in television. Um mm-hmm. You said you were obsessed with television. It sounded like as a kid, you watched a lot of TV. Can you speak about the beginnings and your trip to China that led to this power of visual to communicate?
1: Sure. Well, the introduction chapter of my book is basically very similar to the, the uh, script of my TED talk. So, if people want to hear it, uh, they can watch my TED talk on the power of visual thinking. But yeah, people would say to you, say to me, uh, Todd, what do you want to be when you grow up as a kid? And I would say, I want to be Superman. I was obsessed with Superman. In fact, uh, this is one of my mugs I keep on my desk for those watching the video. So he's always close, close at hand. And they would say, "Well, if you can't be Superman, what what would your backup plan be?" And I said, "All right, Batman." So, like as a kid, those are my two visions of possibilities. So, um, but then I realized that uh, if I couldn't be Superman or Batman, I the next best thing would be to work in the TV industry in some capacity. And I had <laughs> yeah. no idea what. Um, in fact, I keep I keep this on my desk as a constant reminder of my Superman Batman heritage. Um, but in a way, someone once said to me. You don't have X-ray vision, but you have visual thinking as a superpower. And as Batman, you don't have the Bat utility belt, but you have your coaching toolkit. So, it's, and I rescue people and I help to help make people uh, have better lives. So, in some ways, I I get to channel Superman and Batman in my everyday work. So, um, but working in the TV industry, I um, worked in advertising in New York for a year, and then I moved out to L.A. Having grown up in New York, it was a big move to go out to Hollywood, and I got a series of uh, part-time jobs in the entertainment industry. Um, I worked for Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. That was my first job. And most, my baby, my uh, millennial students have no idea, and Gen Xers have no idea who Michael Nesmith or the Monkees Yeah, That's
0: true. I think he's deceased now, isn't he? Yes,
1: he just recently passed away. Yeah. The baby boomers appreciate that. And then I worked for Aaron Spelling on Dynasty. I worked in casting at Columbia Pictures, comedy at Disney, and drama at CBS. So during all those years of working in the TV industry, the big theme was storytelling and character development. And there's a lot of parallels to that and to coaching we could talk about later, but then I got into the theme park business as a project manager. So I was sent by my company. We made robotic figures for theme parks. So they sent me, I had never been outside the United States before. I didn't have a passport, but they shipped me, shipped, shipped me off to China, Shenzhen, China, just over the border from Hong Kong, to oversee this installation of these seven life-size robotic, Figures, elephants, sheep, and cows for this culture. And I
0: I remember you saying that you decided to wear a suit the first day and it was like 109 outside. And (laughs) that suit didn't last very long.
1: I showed up in my (laughs) New York suit with my briefcase as (laughs) as if I was going to a meeting in Manhattan. And it was in the middle of like this jungle where it was 110 degrees. I literally took a shower and I went outside. (laughs) It was so humid that it was almost like I took a shower in my suit. Like that's literally (laughs) the next day I learned that. Yeah, I could dress a little more casually. For, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what amazing. did you learn
0: about in doing that installation in China and, and this whole concept around visuals to communicate?
1: Yeah, I showed up with two um, of my colleagues, uh, a mechanical guy and an engineering electrical guy, and then all the Chinese counterparts showed up, and none of them spoke English, including the translator who spoke almost no English, and we spoke no Chinese, but we had to get this done. So what I started doing is picking up a pad or pen um, and pen and start sketching things out, different tools and different, and we used a lot of body language and facial expressions to communicate. So I realized that's not just through our words that we communicate, but through body language, facial expression, and visual images. So that was my first light bulb moment. And at the time, you don't realize it. But looking back, I realized that was a a key point where I was using visual communication. And I said, sometimes felt like I was playing Pictionary and Charades. You know, two words sounds like tape measure, you know, to try to communicate. Um, But it's like, how how would you communicate what a tape measure is with, with your hands or with a drawing? And even though I couldn't draw that well, I suffer from ICD, which is I can't draw syndrome. I still was able to draw well enough i say if you could play pictionary with your friends and family and your kids you could draw well enough to do a stick figure or, or just sketch something out and that was the like the origin story of when i first started realizing well you we- didn't
0: you didn't have google translate back then so you no. couldn't basically take you know put it and say okay now translate this into exactly to chinese right. but i do believe that that element of connecting with a piece of paper and a pen, whether it's a pencil or a pen or a yellow marker or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, there's really something to be said that about that. And I remember you talking about uh, drawing on the back of a napkin as well, right? You know, developing that. Um, And so Obviously, you use these visuals to communicate with these gentlemen, and that's where this power kind of came from, plus all of the exposure you had in Hollywood about developing storylines, right, mm-hmm. coming up with storylines and and doing that. And you have a formula in the book for success and visual leadership, um, you call it. And, and I think it's so true because it's always been said, my listeners will say, well, I've heard this a lot a uh, picture's worth a thousand words, but it really is probably worth more than that today. Um, can you speak with our listeners about the formula and how the formula can help us create results in our personal and in our business lives? Because I know that I've been caught sometimes, not as much lately, but I, I used to be. And I used to be a yellow pad kind of salesman. Mm. You know, I would always pull out the yellow pad and I would draw it. Now we have all these electronic devices, and it takes longer to pull out the pen and turn it on and get it, you know, get it going. And by that time, you've lost the idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, so that's why I tell my students to leave your laptops at home and just bring like a sketch pad or just any pad and pens. So I do a lot of drawing exercises in my, I teach leadership at NYU in Columbia, as you mentioned, I incorporate a lot of drawing exercises. So instead of just My sketching out a a model, I have my students, if it's a four box matrix, if it's a five level staircase, I actually have them draw it out. And the the research has shown that when we draw, we activate a different part of our brain. It's it's kinesthetic activity and it's a visual activity. And if you reconstruct it yourself as opposed to just be shown it. Or, or even more or than just being told it, um, you actually remember, and I always talk about attention, comprehension, and retention. I mentioned that in my book in TED Talk too, that when you use visual imagery or visual language, it gets people to, people to focus. It captures their attention, it increases their understanding, and it helps them to remember. So attention. Why are, why are
0: people, in my estimation, this is just a personal observation, they seem to be afraid or uptight about drawing in front of people. Yeah. Um you know I have behind me here this this wall is basically a big 55 inch white screen that you it it's um it's a visual whiteboard is what it is yeah. and even me after all the stuff I've been through there are times when I get up on that thing and I start drawing and I think to myself oh boy I'm, I don't want anyone else to see this and I want my listeners to know that it's okay. And I wonder what you would tell people today about that.
1: Yeah, well, I recently did a visual leadership workshop for a group of 20 CEOs. And the guy who brought me in said, you're not going to actually make them draw, are you? And I'm like, yes, that's a part of the experience. <laughs> and he's like, "Well, won't that feel to them like a little kindergarten-y? And I said, maybe at first, but next thing you know, is they're asking for more time and more colors. You know, it's just like, because... What I always say is, if you ask a group of kids, how many of you could draw, how many raise their hand? All of them. Right? All of them. Right? But you ask a group of business people, and none of them raised their hand. Right. It was self-conscious about looking stupid or looking bad. So I actually take people through a very simple exercise. If you could draw a line, a square, a circle, and a triangle, you could sketch out an idea. Right? So it's not, a, it's not an assessment of your drawing abilities. It's an assessment of your ability to communicate something visually. And I actually wrote an article... Uh, for Ink Magazine called Can You Draw What Your Company Does? So I could send you the link, or people could just Google Can You Draw What Your Company Does, Ink Magazine. To read the article, but it tells the story of an exercise I did with a group of clients, salespeople, and how through that one 15 minute exercise, it completely changed the way they went about their sales process. So, just uh, had they not gone through the drawing exercise, they may never have reached that point. So, it was a real life case study and how drawing helps us to access your right brain, you know, left brain, logical, right brain, rhythm. That's why I always remember left brain, right brain. But we incorporate both sides of the brain, the logical and the creative were more powerful than either. On their
0: own. It was interesting because I was recently watching a documentary that was done on Netflix about a psychologist. Actually he's in, I think he's in New York, actually, and I can't remember his name. Oh Stutz. But he's, Stutz. Stutz. Yeah. And he draws, yeah. but he draw he even has Parkinson's. So when he draws these images out, and they used them in the video, right? They they showed them. They look like scratches on paper. You know, they were kind of tough, but Phil Stutz, that's it, Phil Stutz. Yeah um
1: but he's it was based in LA and he's Jonah Hill's therapist and that was but I I actually wrote a blog post about how he uses those note cards and has this patience and he yeah uh, to communicate ideas
0: he he is fantastic i actually i'm going to write him to be on the show but mm-hmm. um he, he is wonderful but go back to my second question i wanted to make sure you got the formula in yeah. because yeah. i interrupted you but tell the formula and then we'll we'll move forward with some other really great stuff.
1: Sure, I'm not a mathematical guy, but for the mathematical people out there, you know, v, the formula is VL equals VT plus VC times M plus L, and that stands for visual leadership is visual thinking plus visual communication times or applied to management and leadership. So that's like in a in a in a mathematical formula, that's the foundation of everything that I do.
0: Yeah, and it it really makes sense. And when you get the book, look at the formula. You don't need to memorize it. What you need to do is just look at it. You will figure out what he's talking about. Speak with the listeners about visual leadership. You know, I've heard about visual thinking. I've heard about all these other elements that are visual in nature. Um, and the, the grandfather of kind of this art form that started is in San Francisco, Right. And you and I talked about uh, talked about him, and his name is blanking out on me right now. What David, is it? Dave David Sibbets. David Sibbets. and David's been on the show like three times. And there couldn't be, you know, look, when all of you kind of start out in this uh, graphic facilitation arena, not everybody's perfect, right? But you start and you keep practicing, you get better and better. Speak to the listeners about visual leadership and how our mindset can make something good or bad. But that the bottom line of the perception of what is good or bad is the bottom line. And then, and then how we have purpose and passion about working um, at what we're doing. Because in our own minds, we create something good or bad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: Shakespeare said in Hamlet, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Right, yeah. I would add visual thinking makes makes it so. That's my own spin on Shakespeare. But yeah, Dave Sibbitt is the grandfather of this industry, his company called Grove in Northern California. What he does is teaches people to use drawing and, and graphic recording and things like that. I'm like the anti-Dave Sibbitt because I represent the people who can't draw. And yeah. how we could use visual imagery and props and metaphors and stories and mental models to help people think visually. Because so many executives say, oh, I can't draw, so this doesn't apply to me, or I'm not in the creative field, so this doesn't apply to me. I was doing that workshop with the CEOs I mentioned before. Two guys were sitting next to each other, two CEOs who had known each other for 15 years, and I actually had them do that exercise. Can you draw what your company does? So they actually had to either explain through a drawing either a metaphor or sketching out their supply chain, however they wanted to do it. And one guy said to the other, I've known you for 15 years, and I never really understand your business or your business issues until you sketched it out for me. And now it's like the light bulb went off." Here's my light bulb that went off. I was keep my light bulb handy. The um, yellow one. <laughs> but, but that's a great example of how two, these two guys that were friends knew each other, business associates for years. But until the guy sketched it out, the other one didn't really realize that he understood his issues and his challenges and was able to help him. So that's the main point. So visual leadership. And just so you know, I, some people don't realize that I spell it as one word with a shared capital L. And the idea behind the word visual leadership, one, I got a patent on it. Um, The first two times the U.S. Patent Office rejected it, the third time was a charm and they, they approved it. But visual leadership represents the fact that who you are and how you lead is inseparable from the lens through which you see the world, right? Our background, our culture, our education, our life experiences, our values all shape what we see, but also what we miss, what we don't see, right? Yeah. One of the concepts of visual leadership is to open up your eyes and open up your mind to seeing the world through a new lens, through a different lens, and also through the lens of other people. And the other aspect of this is when you mention the word leadership, and I've done this poll hundreds of times, one of the first three words that comes to mind, and the number one is vision, right? Mm-hmm. So, what does it mean to s- s- talk about having a leadership vision? What does it mean to call someone a visionary leader? When you think of visionary leaders, who comes to mind? Martin Luther King. Uh, Steve Jobs, right? Jeff Bezos. They were all people who had a picture of the future, and the key word is picture, in their mind's eye, which is a term also coined by Shakespeare and Hamlet. Um, they have a picture in their mind of a future that's different from and better than the current reality. So their challenge as a leader is how do I turn that picture in my head into a real-life transformation And how do I get other people to see what I'm saying? So that's kind of my mantra, my catchphrase. If I was going to put that on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, it would be asking the question, how do you get other people to see what you're saying? So I'll stop right there. But that's the foundation of what visual leadership is all about.
0: Yeah, no, it's important for listeners to understand. And I I remember uh, being in the audience once, uh, uh, a National Geographic photographer, his last name was DeWitt. I don't know if you ever heard him speak or not. You know, when you talk about visual, there couldn't be anything more than trying to capture you taking thousands of pictures for National Geographic to actually pick one, right, of, of the scene. And he used to say that intuitively, now here's where I want to bring in this whole intuitive element, even though you didn't write about it extensively. His, he would get an intuitive hit that would say, turn around, DeWitt. Turn around, lay down, DeWitt lay down take the camera and shoot from a different angle shoot from a different perspective and it were it was those pictures where he got that hit that literally made it into the magazine because they weren't standard hey i'm standing here and i shoot an elephant or i or i shoot a giraffe or a tiger or whatever he would literally take a whole new perspective and angle at the way in which he shot a picture and i thought that was really, really significant. Um, when you want to get something like that, turn around, audience, and look at it a different way.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, the, um, quote I, I, the quote I had in my TED Talk with is the uh, from Marcel Proust, who said, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. So the example you just gave is a great example of change your point of view, right? And so what would be the leadership equivalent of that? I was thinking about, remember the show Undercover Boss, where the boss would go in disguise and pose, you know, get out of your ivory tower, get out of your office. Um, go down to the shop floor, go out into the field, see the world through the lens of your people and through your customers, and you're going to get a whole different vantage point than you would get from just looking at spreadsheets and and looking at your, your cash flow statements. As yep, example. and
0: ask questions. I mean, yeah. you know what you want to do is you want to find out how people feel about what's yeah. going on, whether you're on the assembly line or you're out in a construction site, right? You want to know what they feel, which is why Undercover Boss was so good, because yeah. they were asking those questions of the people. Now, you speak about four ways that one can manage and lead visually. Um, what are they and why are they so important to manifesting our ideas into reality?
1: Sure, I break it down into four categories and they're not mutually exclusive silos, but, but when used in combination, they're even more effective. But just for the sake of our conversation, this is kind of how my book is structured. Category one is using visual imagery. So using pictures, using props, using photographs, anything that you, any information you could take in through your, through your physical eye, right? So using imagery, or you can use visual language, right? You could describe something, almost painting a movie with words. Those are all of use of imagery, right? You want to get someone to have a picture in their head. So that's category one, visual images. Category two in fact, if you think about the word images, it's closely related to imagination, right? They share the same root, right? So in order to imagine the future, you need to have a picture of it in your head. Category two is using mental models and frameworks. So this could be like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It could be a four-box matrix, like the time management matrix or SWOT analysis. It's basically about creating... We don't want to put people in boxes and the saying, thinking outside the box has become a cliche, but if we put things in a box or a framework or a structure... We can take the complexity and messiness of life and work and put them into categories so we could see things more clearly and then find solutions and opportunities that we might not otherwise see. So that's category mm-hmm. two, mental models and frameworks. Category three is using metaphor and analogy, and this is where I get to bring in my even though I have a formula for visual leadership, I was actually an English literature major with a concentration in Shakespeare and poetry. I think I already quoted Shakespeare a couple of times here. Um, so using metaphor and analogy. So a lot of times we just think of metaphors as the you know a tool of songwriters and poets, but we use metaphorical language in our everyday life. So we'll talk more about some real-life examples of that. But metaphors are using visual language to explain something and bring it to life. And category four, which is one of the hottest topics out there, is using visual storytelling or leadership storytelling to convey an idea and to motivate and inspire people. So those are my four buckets, basically.
0: Well, those buckets are so important, Todd. I mean, really, when you think about it, you know, uh, pictures and then metaphors and uh, the diagrams, they all are so visual in helping us understand something. You know, and I would tell people, you know, if you're going to be doing presentations you know, start to develop an asset library, pull over pieces that you like, that you're going to use frequently, and you're going to put together into a PowerPoint or a something, but use visual. And they've, they've proven, and I think you'll agree with this, that when you do these PowerPoints, don't fill them with words, because people don't remember a, a, a bullet-pointed thing that goes down the page. Uh, they don't even want to see it, and number one. And number two, they won't remember it. So the bigger the words, the more visual. So if it was like a big word, think outside the box. With a box underneath it would be better than taking a list of what it would be like to think out of the box, correct? Yeah, a
1: slide filled with words is basically called your teleprompter. Right. Yeah. It's basically, if you're going to read. So, so, you know, while you're speaking, if you're reading, as soon as you put up a slide with 10 bullet points, what is your audience doing? They're reading the slide. They're not even listening to you at this point. Mm-hmm. So you have to send it to them and say, read it on your own if you can say, all right, bullet point number two. So, yeah, just as you said, capture. You know, Steve Jobs was a master of that. If you watch any of his presentations for the announcement of any of the um, iPod or, uh, you know, iBook, any, any of the um, uh, the iPhone, any of those Product announcements, you can see how he used visuals with almost no or very few words on the screen. So, Oh,
0: they were ma- – Apple was masters at it, yeah. uh, just to say the least, and thus, uh, I think, for much of their success. Yeah. Um, and I'll attribute it to that. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit. You used to go on these long rides with your parents, your mom and dad in the car, and that your father loved to make everyone laugh. He was a yeah. big jokester. Um, Can you tell the story and why this is a good example of visual thinking and visual communications? Because there's actually a picture of, I think it is really your dad and the dashboard uh, in the book. Um, And and, uh, I remember taking long rides with my dad, but I don't remember my dad being so funny, (laughs) although he would point things out along the way, you know. (laughs)
1: Yeah, my father used to sing to Sinatra and Tony Benton in the car and uh, entertain us. And uh, But yeah, it's the same corny dad jokes all the time in the same spot. So yeah, we'd be driving to my grandmother's house from Long Island into Brooklyn, and we would inevitably pass a certain point in the trip. And my father would say, hurry up, Todd, Steve, D." to my mother, you know, help, someone give me a piece of paper and a pen. And then we, my mother would say, why, Harvey? Why do you need a piece of paper and a pen? He said, well, look at the sign. And the sign would say, punchline, draw a bridge, right? Yeah so we're about to go over a drawbridge and uh but if you think about that and that's that's a visual storytelling example right and i hope that for our listeners anytime you go across, see a drawbridge sign for the rest of your life you'll think of my father and maybe give a little chuckle or even a groan and maybe you'll even start saying it as my wife does now um but if you think about the words drawbridge right, the idea is the draw bridge goes up and that's why you need to be aware of it. But just the two words, draw, drawing, which we just talked about, and bridge. What well, does a bridge do? It's about connection, right? A bridge connects two sides of, of land to go across the water, like a bridge over troubled water, right? Um, so when you see a sign named call, draw a bridge that says draw a bridge, that always makes me think of visual thinking and visual communication and making connections between people almost as if you're... You know, creating a bridge between you and the other person, right? Whether it's our customer or our employees or whomever. It was
0: a it was a good symbolism. You have a picture of a drawbridge. Unfortunately, out here in California, we don't see many drawbridges. (laughs) But I think in the East Coast, you definitely see more. I have a funny little story. A friend of mine, he's now deceased. He used to uh, we would push the button to go across the street, and as you know, in some of the lamps or the i say posts there's a voice that comes out that says wait 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 and it you know you don't have the ability to walk across and he would always yell out to me why do they want to know my weight (laughs) 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 and i know it was stupid it sounded so stupid but actually it was so corny it was funny you know he would say that Almost every time we were at one of those crosswalks,
1: Um, I I would say, "Do they want to know my height also?" Yeah, exactly. uh. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, you know this napkin sketching thing that I mentioned a few seconds ago. Tell us a story about Southwest Airlines was founded, um, and the use of this napkin sketching. Now, again, I don't. I have plenty of napkins. I don't always have a white pad. Uh, can you speak about the visual thinking tool and others that our listeners might use to develop an idea? Um, I mean, I would probably go back to the. I mean, you can probably realize this, but the Native American Indians used to use a stick and draw on the sand, right? Um, and a lot of the Remember, symbols. Did you ever play
1: football as a kid, like touch football, and draw the play out with a stick? You know, yeah. The sand yeah. or whatever on the grass, or, or it, in the palm of your hand, right? I remember right. people say, you run here, you do a post pattern, you do a hook pattern or whatever, right? So, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, talk about that story about Southwest Airlines. I think the, the listeners would get a kick out of it.
1: Sure. Well, napkin sketching is just as it says. Like, you know, you're sitting at a bar, you grab a napkin, sketch something out. It could also be a back of the envelope. It could be any scrap of paper, right? That's the idea behind it. It's, it's always there. But the classic story, the classic, classic napkin sketching story is about Southwest Airlines about uh, 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 Southwest Airlines, how it was born. Um, um, the guy was sitting at a bar, or, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Roland King, was sitting at a bar and he said to Herb Kelleher, um, what if we created a small commuter airline that just connected the three cities, and he drew a triangle of San Antonio, Dallas, and Houston, and Herb Kelleher said, love the idea, let's do it, and that became Southwest Airlines. So just by drawing that triangle with those three cities, he painted a mental map in Herb Kelleher's mind's eye where he can actually visualize it. Right. So he pictured the map of Texas. He pictured this triangle and said, yes. And now Southwest airlines having other problems right now these days, but, um, they are uh, one of the top, you know, national airlines now, and they were all. The idea of it was born on of a triangular napkin sketch. So that's just one example of how you could take strip something down to its basic bare bones to communicate it, so someone can understand it, and then from there you can add meat to the bones and add those other layers onto it. But that's a, one of the classic napkin sketching stories.
0: Well, I, I remember working in companies and playing the video about Herb Kelleher. And the whole story around love l u v right and the the heart on the back of the uh wing of the plane, or I shouldn't say the wing, but the on the back of the plane, but at the same time, you know he was big on culture, right, like let's pass out m and m s he'd walk around and Give M&Ms to the people. He tried to give some autonomy to a certain degree so people could make their own decisions about what was going on, if there was a canceled flight or whatever. But he was one of the first to kind of really get into like developing the culture around love. There was like love, and people were like, Love, are you kidding oh. me? Like, we're not going to do love. But for all of those of you who don't know much about Herb Kelleher, it's a great story, and there's some great videos out there that you could learn inside your companies. Uh, about how you shift the culture.
1: Um, he's just been one of the top CEOs. He just passed away a few years ago, but he's one of the top CEOs of the 20th century. So definitely worth studying how he built culture, as you just said. So yeah,
0: yeah. phenomenal. Unfortunately, like you said, they've had a few hiccups here lately. I'm sure they'll come back because they're a strong company. But you know, uh, you you tell another cute story about your dog Coco, and there's a picture uh, in the book. Is that Coco?
1: That's not actually her because her name wasn't Coco because I wanted to preserve her anonymity. Plus, <laughs> plus with passwords, a lot of times they ask for what was your childhood's dog, childhood dog's name. So I didn't want to put that out into the world. So uh, that's why I changed her name to keep her anonymous. So. Uh, okay,
0: well that's good. Well, whoever this dog's real name was, and how uh, you always retrieved the yellow ball. Now look, I have two mixed mutt dogs myself. And we take them to the park like three times a week and throw balls, right? Um, What you refer to is when you would throw these balls, she'd always pick up the yellow ball, no matter what. You could have a black one, you could have a blue one, you could have whatever was yellow. You speak about visual thinking tools and others to our listeners might develop as an idea. I think uh, the the point of the story was, doing the best at what we like to do so in other words the dog liked to go get the yellow ball so it went and fetched the yellow ball all the time
1: in fact i keep these on my desk uh, to remind me of the uh those watching the video version i would throw a red ball a yellow ball and a and a um a blue ball i throw them all the way across the backyard and i impress people i'd say uh coco uh go get the yellow ball, and people would be amazed she would bring back the yellow ball. But even if I said get the red ball or the blue ball, she always brought back the yellow one. So what yeah. I did was tell her to bring back the yellow ball. So there's a saying by Frederick Taylor, the original management consultant back in 1911. He said that people do best what they like best to do. So if we could, just like my dog loved bringing back that yellow ball for whatever reason, and we find out about our people, what they love to do, we could set them up for success. Now, we can't always do that. But if we find out what they what their passions are, what their sense of purpose is, what they're good at, then we could set them up for success by giving them whatever that yellow ball is to do, and they will shine, right? They will always succeed. So that's the, the yellow ball leadership principle.
0: I like that. And you know, I know dogs are pretty colorblind, right? They don't see all the spectrums that we do. And I noticed the manufacturers of these balls, and this is a side note, everybody, they're either orange and blue. <laughs> because I think those must be the colors that they can see and what they'll go after. Um, But it it is interesting. uh, This whole concept that you're telling that, you know, they'll go fetch something they like to fetch. Right. And your point here is do something you like to do because you're always going to keep getting better at it. Right.
1: Um, You want to find out if you don't know, what people like to do, where their passions are, what they're good at, what they'd like to learn. Then you may be giving them, you know, Jim Collins said, um, get the, get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off and get the people in the right seat on the bus. Similarly, with the yellow ball, you want to know what that yellow ball is or what that right seat on the bus is for each person on your team. And then together, you could take it somewhere great. So a lot of times people underperform because they're in the wrong seat on the bus or you're asking them to do something that they're not equipped to do or they don't have a passion for. So the the, the whole idea, the metaphor here is find out, learn from your people what it is that they like to do and what they want to be better at, and then help to develop those skills, help to nurture them towards their great Right.
0: And, you know, you you still travel a lot, but you used to travel a lot more, it seems yeah. like, doing speaking. Yeah. And you were talking about going in your sock drawer. Mm-hmm. And you would have these different color socks, right? Um, and then you told the story about, shit, this is just too complicated. I'm just going to go down. And one day you went down to New York and you bought 16 pairs of black socks. Mm-hmm. Um, would you comment on making a conscious decision not to have to stop and think. And I think that's really the point here is, you know, we have a lot of choices in life today, right? There's just tons of choices out there for us, more than I think we've ever had in our life. If you work into a, in a developing country like we do, you might not have all those choices if you're in a different part of the world, but we have tons of choices about what we eat, what we put on, uh, the kind of car we drive, all of that kind of stuff. Um, How do we make it simple? Because it does seem complicated at times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, one way to simplify is what I call, again, I use a lot of colors as metaphors. So this is called black sock decision-making. And the idea was just that instead of spending a half hour picking out which socks should I wear, if you had nothing but black to choose from, there's no choice involved, right? Right. So So the metaphor there is to simplify complexity by eliminating as many decisions as you can and systemizing and commoditizing certain things to free your time and your mental bandwidth up for making the decisions of things that really matter. Barry Schwartz has a great TED Talk and book called The Paradox of Choice. And he talks about when you give people too many choices, and you know this as a salesperson, they get paralyzed by indecision and don't choose anything right? That's why they're small, medium, and large. That's why with a bottle of wine, they have the cheap one, the middle one, and the expensive one. Most people buy the middle one, right? So how do you frame pricing? How do you frame, you choose between vendors, you choose between iPhones, whatever products you're buying or services you're offering, you want to simplify that for your customers and for your, your team so that they can sell better or um, make better decisions. So that's the idea behind Black Sock decision-making is simplify the things that you can. And you know who does this is Marshall Goldsmith, the number one executive coach in the world. If you look at pictures of him, he wears a green golf shirt and khakis all the time. And mm-hmm. the story behind it, just like my Black Sock decision-making, is when he's packing, he, when he's traveling, he doesn't have to decide, what am I going to wear today? He could bring, if I'm gone for 10 days, i bring 10 green golf shirts and 10 pants, <laughs> and I'm packed, right? And hopefully he wears black socks too and just packs the, the black socks, right? But that's the idea behind that was just to simplify. And, you know, does anyone really care what you wear, or what kind of socks you wear? No, right? So those are the types of things that leave those things um, or what kind of, to- what, what, if you have five toothpastes to choose from in the morning, You know, it would take you a half hour to brush your teeth, right? As opposed to just reaching for whatever's on Oh, yeah,
0: it's so true. You know, I just had Marshall on not that long ago about his new book. And uh, when he says to regret to fulfillment, and he works with a lot of high achievers, right? Mm -hmm. And he was, I remember this distinctly, what he was saying, because I'd never in all the years that I've been reading his books, Todd, heard him outwardly speak about the his theories around Buddhist teachings. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did this time in this in this last book. And it was almost like, hey, I'm 72 years old. Now I can talk what I want to talk about. So I'm going to do it. And I think he made an important point about non attachment to the outcome. He said, you know, all these people have these attachments to an outcome. You know, they—they especially if you're a high achiever, it's got to be done a particular way. And he said, no, you've got to let go of that, right? And that's pretty simple when you're talking about this sock decision, too. It's like, I'm not attached to which pair of socks. (laughs) It's a green shirt and a khaki pair of pants and black socks and black shoes or brown shoes or whatever the hell
1: color you're going to put on. But it's... Steve Jobs wore the black turtleneck and the blue jeans, right? It's kind of like the yeah. Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg and his hoodie, right? It, it becomes, it's part of your brand. It's, it's also just about simplifying your life. Like, it you know, it,
0: it cool. is. And my wife even kids me. She said, you know, when you do these podcasts, you know, you usually I always have just a black shirt on and I do. Um, and, and today it's a little cooler. So I'm wearing a little vest, but my point is, is like, it it's it's my uniform. And she says, well, you have like five black shirts in there. And I go like, yeah, because it's easy. I just went on black shirts and a pair of jeans and pants. And, you know, I don't want to complicate things. Right. So I like that. And just, um, just
1: regarding Marshall, the book is called The Earned Life, and it's amazing and it's great. Yeah. And I'm actually a member of Marshall Goldsmith's MG100 Coaches, which is, so I get, I'm so honored that every Monday, every other Monday morning, we have like an hour with Marshall just where he talks about his philosophies and everything. It's such an amazing honor and privilege to be in that group because his book, what got you, I have that on the shelf, but also what got you here won't get you there right behind me on my bookshelf. I show, see it. I see It's like my coaching Bible. I teach it in my classes. And uh, I really follow it in my practice. And he's well, just-
0: he's been a good friend of mine. He used to live like uh, three and a half miles from me here. Right, I, right. used to take, I used to take walks with him oh. uh, from his house. We would do a walk every Saturday, not every Saturday morning, but one Saturday morning a month. And we mm-hmm. would all gather in his house and we'd walk and just talk. And it was right. a great, it, and then we'd have uh, tea or coffee when we came back. So it was mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Uh, but he definitely has a lot of wisdom,
1: as you're saying. And um, so sharing. I mean he's giving back. I mean, that's the whole point of hundred coaches is to give away everything he's learned and everything he knows with the promise that those of us in the Hundred Coaches that we do the same when we reach that point of our lives. So we're all well good. you
0: you are a living example of that as well, you know. And um I think one of the comments he made when we were interviewing because I was watching the video again, was um, Hey, don't you wish you were 32 again? And he goes, well, no, not really. <laughs> I'll take pizza. I'll take pizza, bro. So speak with our listeners about the little pink spoon, um, the concept that Baskin Robbins uses. And what suggestions would you give our listeners about giving their prospects this free taste? And what are their, you know, what are the 3 showums that you talk about in the book? And by the way, John Robbins has been on the show before. Oh. And Ocean Robbins has not been on the show. But if you look at who's carrying on the le- legacy, it's Ocean Robbins right now. Yeah. That's
1: great. Yeah. So, you know, for those of us who know and love Baskin Robbins, right, you go in, I always get Rocky Road anyway. So, but you, meanwhile, you want to taste a few other flavors. So they have those little pink spoons, although I think they've switched over to wooden ones because they're more environmentally sound. So they don't, may not use the plastic that they used to. But the whole idea is that the little pink spoon you get to taste a few different flavors to make a decision before you decide what kind of cone you want to buy similarly in your business what is the equivalent of the little pink spoon how can you give your customers or employees a quote free sample of what you are offering so that they will want to buy the whole cone or a gallon or come back for more right so that's the idea it's like how do you give people a taste of what you do um and that's the metaphor it's, it's that simple so if you're a job seeker and you're going on an interview you may tell the story about, you know, this is where I worked on my resume. But what you also want to do is give your employer, prospective employer, a quote free sample of your wisdom, of your skills, of your passions, right? So you want to illustrate through a story, tell them, here's something I once did that will reflect on, that will create a vision in their mind's eye, they can actually picture you in that job doing that job, right? So that's the whole idea. If you want a customer to buy your product or service, it might be offering a free sample of your workshop or giving them a 10-minute sampler or something. So that's the key idea there. How could you give people a taste of what it is that you do?
0: Well, I've often heard this next one, and I like that we're getting out all these little examples, Todd, because they're great. They're little chapters in your book. They might only be three pages long, some of them. but. They're short and to the point, and it's something everybody here listening today can use. And I just want to remind you that the book is filled with this uh, kind of wisdom, so it's great. And you had this recent visit with your cardiologist, and he almost like you say, gave you a heart attack. Can you tell the the story and the important element of how people, in this case, your doctor relate numbers? can either shock you or be pleasantly surprising and encouraging. Um, And I think this is an important one because it's how you frame the picture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We all know businesses are business. Numbers are essential in the business world, right? We're always communicating numbers, stock prices, yeah, you know, whatever, right? Uh, so the story is I went to my cardiologist for a checkup, as those of us over 50 have to do, and I went through the EKG and this test and that test, and my cardiologist, not my regular one who I'd gone to a couple of times before, but the new guy filling in, came in, takes out my numbers and uh, my results, and he says, based on your test results, you have a 5% chance of having a heart attack within the next 10 years. And I started getting weak in the knees and shaky. I thought I was going to pass out. I thought that was like a death. <laughs> and then I said, wait, wait a minute. Doesn't that mean that there's a 95% chance that I won't have a heart attack with next yeah. 10 years? Yeah. he said, yes. He said, yeah, these results are amazing. You're in perfect shape and you have nothing to worry about. And your results are exactly normal for a middle-aged male, your age, uh, and this whole thing. I'm like, That would have been like the way to start off the conversation, right? So what he did, and this was the highlight with the light bulb moment for me, the numbers he gave were not inaccurate. They were correct. But was that the message he intended to convey? Not at all right? So, so often in the business world, whether you're presenting quarterly results or speaking to the media or stock report, whatever, we give numbers, but without context and without the story, the digits are basically meaningless, right? Like if I said to you, I have a 250 average, is that good or bad? Well, it depends. If it's bowling, it's great. If it's baseball or softball, it's not that great, right? So the number 250 without the context and the story doesn't tell you anything, but so often we bore. Just like before, we talk about boring people to death with PowerPoint slides that are filled with bullet points and text. We bore people to death with numbers, right? It doesn't matter if it was twenty point one, two, three, four, five. It's about twenty percent, right? So round things off. Use a graph. Use a visual image. You know, you start with what's the message I want to convey and the story I want to tell to bring. And then you can always provide the numbers as a backup later on. If you present Excel spreadsheets to people for a living. Um, And I realize you're just boring people. And a real example of this is a former client who was a CFO. He was always known as being the most boring part of their company town hall. And then he went through presentation skills training, got rid of the numbers and started being a better storyteller. And people were captivated by his story. And they got the message. He got the message across in a meaningful and memorable way that the numbers just didn't convey. But as a numbers guy he didn't see that before until people brought that to life. So he needed to see the numbers through the lens of his audience and then tell a story that would resonate. So that's the, that's my cardiologist story.
0: Well, it's cardiologist, doesn't matter any doctor. I have a good friend, Dr. Steve Berman here locally, who's um, a hypnotherapist, but also was an emergency room doctor for 20 some odd years. And, and he wrote a book called Healing Beyond Pills and Potions. And when I would come in to see him, he would always say, you know, uh, the bedside manner of most doctors has not been about giving you the positive news first. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that just in your case, if that doctor had learned how to reframe how he put that across to you, you would have received the positive, you know, Mm -hmm. you have a 95% a chance of not having a heart attack versus a five percent chance of having a heart attack, and you know, it is because that also affects your body's kind of um, what I want to call response mechanism as well, right? It, you can go into shock. You said you were shaky at the knees because he told you you had a chance. And the other way, you can walk out encouraged and enthusiastic about what you can do. And Steve is really good at that. I mean, he's really good at doing that. And he says he's trying to teach other doctors how to convey messages to their patients so that they understand and get it better. Now, look, we've talked about a lot of things. We've weaved in your dad's story. We've weaved in the drawbridge, uh, your formula, the pink spoons. We've had a lot of content here. Speak with their listeners, if you would, about the journey, and your reference to what you like calling in the rearview mirror uh, versus the dashboard versus the windshield. And what advice would you give our listeners about um, pulling over to reflect on what they need to do to realize their leadership vision? You know, it's like this is this is kind of our final question, but the reality is, hopefully, you can pull all this together. Yeah,
1: yeah. The metaphor of the leadership journey is central to my classes my coaching and my workshops. so picture you're in a car right there are three things to look at there's more than that but let's say three you have the windshield the rear view mirror and your dashboard right mm-hmm. the windshield represents the future it's about the road ahead it's about you may see blue skies up to the horizon but you don't know what's over the hill right so just as a leader. You have a vision of the future, you have a destination in mind, but you don't know what's beyond what the eye can see. But part of being a leader is to prepare for that and have a vision that's inspiring and compelling. So that's the windshield metaphor. The rearview mirror is about the past, it's about who we are, where we came from, how we got here, but also reminds us metaphorically that we need to look in the mirror and reflect on who we are and how we are as leaders, right? So often we're so busy. That we don't get feedback. We don't look at ourselves in the mirror and say, how did I do in that meeting, in that presentation? How, how am I being seen by my employees, et cetera? So that mirror represents both where we came from and who we are today. And the dashboard is about metrics, right? How do you measure success, right? Um, and it's not its having a balanced scorecard kind of approach. It's not just about hitting your financial numbers, but it's about employee engagement and retention. It's about um, whatever metrics you use in your business and in your life to gauge how well you're doing, that is your dashboard. So here's the key we want to be focused on the road ahead and the windshield in the future because we know if you drive looking in the rearview mirror, you're going to do what? Drive off the road or hit an oncoming car, right? So if you're dwelling on the past while you're heading into the future, it's not going to get you there safely. And similarly, you want the n- numbers. To help you reflect, Peter Drucker said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, right? So you need to have some metrics by which to gauge your success and your performance. But again, if you're driving while just looking at the numbers, you're going to go off the road. So you want to focus on the road ahead and your vision, but you want to also glance at your metrics. And pull over sometimes and take some time for reflection. So that's the short version. Then you can talk about do you have air in your tires and are you on the right road at all? And that's a whole expanded version. But in a nutshell, which is a metaphor by the way, that is the uh, the past, present, future future version of the leadership journey.
0: That's a yeah, but that metaphor is fantastic for everything in life, right? Yeah. Um, I used to have a friend that would say, stay in the now, right? And I have it here on my desk because Ram Dass was on the show <laughs> before, before he passed now. away. And, and, you know, I think that's an important element you're talking about. Um, because, uh, yesterday's a canceled check, tomorrow's a promissory note, mm-hmm. right? We don't know whether we're going to have either of those, right? So when you're driving your car, it's good to look at the measurements and the gauge and look forward into the mirror and see what was behind you as well. But you've got to do it and pull it over. And the most important point I think is kind of pulling over to kind of relays where you are, right? Um, and like you said, there could be a whole other story here about having the right GPS or the map or where we're going or the direction. But also,
1: you in the driver's seat? or you in the passenger seat? Sometimes, as a leader, the best thing you could do is let someone else drive. Right? Move right. over. You navigate and let them step on the gas. And that's how you develop the next generation of leaders, right? And anyone who's ever taught anyone else to drive knows that metaphor firsthand, how scary that could be, and how you have to give up some of your own power to empower someone else. But that driving metaphor is a good one. And sometimes you let someone else navigate and drive and you sit in the backseat, right? So where you are just within that car is situational, right? So that's another aspect of the leadership journey metaphor.
0: Driver Training 101. Well, thank you for taking us on a driver training here about visual leadership. For all my listeners, here's the book, uh, Todd Churches. You can just go to Todd Churches, that's or The Big Blue Gumball. We'll put that in the uh, link as well. we we'll have also put a link to the book on Amazon. Todd, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and you sharing some of your wisdom today with my listeners about visual leadership and so much more. It was really informative, and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Namaste to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support.